You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. There we go. You should be able to hear me now. (laughs) Wow. As always, I feel that it is a sacred privilege to be up here a part of this Life Worth Living series. Last week, Clint handled the preceding nine verses admirably, so they, as they dealt with the inevitability of death. He talked a lot about the temporal versus the eternal perspectives. He reminded us that someday we will all die, unless we're fortunate enough to be, to see Christ's return for his church before we die. Now, if you have a different eschatological view of that, that's okay. You have a right to be wrong. Um, (laughs) I think there's an interesting thing about this in my own life. When I was very young and naive, but I repeat myself, uh, I was just certain that if God granted me even half of a normal lifetime, in other words, if he allowed me to live somewhere between 35 and 40 years, that I would undoubtedly be here when Christ came back to call his church to himself. And my mortal body would instantaneously be changed into my resurrection body on the fly, so to speak, uh, as I was caught up to meet him in the air and thereafter forever to enjoy his presence. I firmly believed that that would happen somewhere in middle age. I wasn't too concerned when I reached 35 and it hadn't happened. When I reached 40, I began to wonder if perhaps I had been mistaken about the timing of all of this. After all, I was over halfway to the average American male lifespan at that point. Now that I am 68, I guess that I'm going to live to 136. (laughs) Or maybe not. (laughs) You see, it's not that I'm afraid of death. I I truly am not, since I trusted Christ as my Savior at age six. I have absolutely believed that if I were to die, I would instantly be in the presence of my Lord Jesus Christ. So death really does not scare me. Pain, serious disability, illness, those, <laughs> those scare me to death. But anyway, so how do you handle all of that? Well, I've titled this morning's message, How to Survive Death and Win. Now, you may be saying to yourself, no one survives death. No one wins over death. That is what we are talking about this morning. So as is my custom, I'm going to ask us to stand together and read aloud the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning. So let's all stand and read together. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, Man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. 
So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for this word today. Thank you for the privilege of looking at it together and learning from it what you would have us to learn. Not only from the wisdom of Solomon, but from the perspective of the whole of Scripture. So I ask this morning that you will guide our hearts and our minds, that we will indeed think your thoughts after you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I wanted to hearken back to something that Clint said last week. He spoke on this for a while. I almost wanted to say that he was griping, but then I rejected that and, and thought of complaining, but that sounded you know, almost as negative. And of course, carping is really negative. So I, I rejected that for the same reason I rejected bellyaching, <laughs> caterwauling, and, and grumbling. I finally settled on opining that Clint was opining about the relative difficulty and or obscurity of the passages that the younger men in this series have had to preach on. And if you remember that, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, go look at last week's message and you'll figure it out. The word, the word opine means to state as an opinion. In Merriam-Webster.com, they said opine has been around since the 15th century. So it's, a, it's an old word. It typically serves to emphasize that the opinion being reported is just that, an opinion. Okay. So let's think about this for a moment. <clears throat> the last time I preached before today was on chapter 7, 15 through 29, that among other things, dealt with Solomon's not so complimentary comments about women. <laughs> you may recall that. I certainly do. <laughs> Clint's passage last week included two direct references to God, <laughs> verses 1 and 7, and one pronominal reference, that's by a pronoun, in verse 9. My passage today has no reference to God at all in it. Now, I, please understand, I'm not griping, complaining, carping, bellyaching, caterwauling, or grumbling. I am merely opining regarding the relative difficulty of passages which I am called upon to preach in this series. So, <laughs> thank you. Enough of that, Falderall. With all of that little fluff aside, I come to my thesis this morning, which is that because misfortune and death come for us all, 
our only hope of victory in this life is to trust in something that or someone who transcends all of it and has conquered death. Now you may well say, but you just said there's no reference to God himself, let alone to Christ in this passage. That's absolutely true. But like the whole of scripture, it ultimately points to Christ. Because I am someone who is living under the new covenant, not the old covenant, I cannot but look at him as the answer to all of life's difficult questions. And when it comes to death, he is the only one who ever overcame it, whoever defeated it, and who thus offers us a way to overcome and defeat it. That way is in him and in him alone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only the central fact of the gospel which we are called upon to share with the world, it is the central fact in all of human history. Nothing else, no one else, is even a close second. I want to say that again because it's so important. <clears throat> the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only the central fact in the gospel which we are called upon to share with the world, it is the central fact in all of human history. Nothing else, no one else, is even a close second. So, the first major point of the outline, there are only three major points in this outline today, just three big ones, that's all. So if you're taking notes, if there's a thing in your bulletin, you can do that, or on the app, you can do that. The first point of the outline is because death is the apparent end of activity, planning, knowledge, and wisdom, do that which is right at hand, and do it enthusiastically. The verse says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. <clears throat> now, in this passage, passage in both verses 11 and 13, Solomon repeats his oft-repeated, resorts to his oft-repeated phrase, under the sun, under the sun. Here in verse 10, he makes it abundantly clear that he's speaking only of his observations. He's speaking only empirically of that which he can see, hear, touch, taste, smell. He is speaking of nothing that's revelational, nothing that comes supernaturally given or communicated to him. He makes this obvious by referencing Sheol, the place of the dead, the grave. And he says that there's no apparent difference between the righteous and the wicked in that. Everybody dies. He says essentially all end up in the nothingness of the grave. And we must admit that if one is speaking purely from an observational viewpoint, he has a point. Cemeteries are singularly peaceful places. That's because the people there aren't doing anything. They're dead. It's just a thing about cemeteries. Everybody's dead there. Now, we face death, and we have to balance two kind of opposing things in our mind. The first one is <clears throat> the understanding that I am here on this earth, and I am loved, I am valued, I am needed, at least by some people, and that's an important thing. On the other hand, I am not indispensable. 
You know, the graveyard is full of people who thought the world would stop when they died. And guess what? It didn't. Um, It just kept on going and still does. And we have to come to grips with that, don't we? We have to understand that that balance is real, that we do have to deal with that. Despite all of this and all that Solomon says about life and death, he says here that we are to live our lives taking what comes with all your might. This is the only indication in the entire passage that Solomon sees any eternal perspective to life. The fact that he advises us to seize life as it is presented to us, despite its seeming futility, indicates that he is looking at least to some degree at something beyond life. This is the reason why I think I'm justified in referring to Christ's person and work at the end of it all. Solomon talks here about activity, planning, wisdom, and knowledge. And I thought it would be instructive for us to look at how those words are translated in different versions of the Bible, different translations. The NASB says what I read, activity, planning, knowledge, and wisdom. The King James Version, also called called the authorized version, 1611, says work, device, knowledge, wisdom. The English Standard Version says work, thought, knowledge, wisdom. The NIV says working, planning, knowledge, wisdom. The Revised Standard Version says work, thought, knowledge, wisdom. The 1901 ASV, American Standard Version, said work, device, knowledge, and wisdom. The Douay Reims, American edition, that's Catholic Bible, says work, wisdom, work, reason, wisdom, and knowledge. The Geneva Bible, published in 1599, says work, invention, knowledge, and wisdom. What's interesting about that is that that was the the Bible of the pilgrims. When they came to America, they were not, by and large, using the King James, the authorized version. They were using the Geneva Bible, which was translated earlier. Anyway, and of course, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message says, neither work to do nor thoughts to think. But you get the idea that what Solomon is telling us is that every apparent activity of our present lives ceases at the grave. Now, looking at this inevitability of death, there are a couple of responses that come to mind. One of them is nihilism, or nihilism, if you prefer that pronunciation. That's the one that Merriam-Webster shows as the preferred pronunciation. I like nihilism partly, mostly because the word comes from the Latin word nihil, which means nothing. I don't mean it doesn't have a meaning. I mean it means, quote, nothing, end quote. That's the meaning of the word. And nihilism is defined as a viewpoint that traditional values and beliefs are unfounded and that existence is senseless and useless. It also is a doctrine that denies any objective ground of truth and especially of moral truths. It's essentially the groundwork of postmodernism. Albert Camus, in his famous essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, says this, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. How's that for nihilism? You may remember that Sisyphus, the Greek myth of Sisyphus, 
Sisyphus was the king of Ephira, which is now known as Corinth. He was condemned by the gods for his self-aggrandizing craftiness and deceitfulness to roll an immense boulder up a hill only to watch it come back to hit him, repeating this action daily for eternity. It's the very definition of futility, isn't it? So nihilism is one possible response to the idea of the inevitability of death. Response number two is faith in something or someone who gives independent meaning to life. That's my choice, by the way, in case you were wondering. Um, death is inevitable, but it is not final. God gets the last word, not us. Now, you might say, well, there's a third choice. You could just believe that the whole purpose of life is pleasure. You could become a hedonist. There's a problem with that. As we've seen over and over again in this book, pleasure, when pursued for its own sake, diminishes. The law of diminishing returns, right? So you have to do more for less pleasure. And that continues until you reach a certain point when the hedonist finally says, it's not worth the trouble to pursue that pleasure. And he ends up as a nihilist. That happens every day. Our culture today is teetering on that edge between hedonism and nihilism. And I believe that we have the answer to that, by the way. We're the only ones who do. The second major point of the outline is that because in this world there is no fairness regarding triumph, victory, provision, nor wealth, and because sudden misfortune can fall upon anyone, life itself offers no answers to life. Life itself doesn't give us the answer to its own riddles. In the last prior message that I preached in this series, I made the point that whoever said life is fair lied. And once again, Solomon seizes upon that idea in verses 11 and 12, the fundamental unfairness of life in this world. He says, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it, is, when it suddenly falls on them. Three times in those verses, Solomon uses the word for time. It's a simple word in Hebrew, et, and it occurs 288 times in the Old Testament. It means time. <laughs> That's really what it means. It's almost always translated that way, about 250 some of the individual occurrences of it. And what he's telling us is that time and death are related. Those of us who are getting on in years are becoming more and more aware of that, aren't we? As time goes on. But the second word he uses is the word chance. The word is pega in Hebrew. That particular verb comes from another word, pega, but 
the particular word that's used here only occurs twice in the Old Testament. Once here and once in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4, where Solomon is writing to the king of Tyre, King Hiram. And he says to him, But now Yahweh my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversity nor misfortune. And the word misfortune is the word there for chance. It's this word. The idea of the word is it's a surprise and it's not a good one. It's a bad one. That's the idea of this word. And he cites two word pictures to help us grasp the idea of this. One is a fish caught in what he calls a treacherous net. The word treacherous means bad or evil. And the second one is birds caught in a snare. In both cases, the fish and the bird, they are not anticipating what happens. They are not expecting it. If they saw it coming, they would avoid it. But they don't see it coming. That's the point. They're caught in it. Bad things happen even to good people don't they? When Hurricane Harvey hit Houston this past August 25 through 29, <clears throat> dozens of churches were flooded or made inaccessible by flooding. The storm dumped over 9 trillion gallons of water over that weekend. That's a staggering number, isn't it? The storm was the wettest tropical cyclone on record in the United States. It displaced over 30,000 people and prompted 17,000 rescues of people stranded or threatened by the wind and the flooding. It did over $198 billion in damage. It killed 89 people in the United States, one of whom was a woman who died of necrotizing fasciitis. That's the flesh-eating bacteria that she contracted when she fell into the waters of the flood. So if you're, if you're looking to life itself to find answers to life itself, you will look in vain. And that brings us to the third point of the outline. Because wisdom is often ignored, even despised, and because sin often destroys goodness, our only possible refuge is trusting in the finished work of Christ. See, Solomon tells us a little story here. It's probably true since he doesn't indicate that it's merely a parable or a made-up thing. He says, also this I came to see his wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed siege works against it. In other words, he attacked the city with the idea of capturing it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. Both of those adjectives are important. He was poor and he was wise. And he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. 
See, the, the point of the story is that despite the wisdom of the poor man's words, which indeed saved the city, he himself is held in contempt. He is not remembered. Even the fact that it was his wisdom that saved the city is ignored. So Solomon concludes that whereas wisdom is better than strength, it is often despised and ignored even after it has saved the day. Then he makes a statement, the truth of which can be observed every day in Washington. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. <laughs> I could cite 536 examples of that. That's all the members of Congress and the Senate and the president. I could, I could do that, but I won't do that. I'll just leave that to your imagination. The shouting of a ruler among fools. Three simple facts from this. Number one, that it often requires quietness and patience to hear the words of the wise. That's an interesting observation, isn't it? That they, many times, they're not the people standing up shouting, they're the people sitting down saying, you know, let's think about this rationally for a moment. Let's kind of consider this a little more sanely. The second thing is that the shouting of a ruler among fools, the, the word simply means idiots, moron, people who are stupid dullards, uh, may be much louder, but it is not nearly as wise. And thirdly, that wisdom is better than strength. But, there's an important but here, one sinner destroys much good. The history of the world provides ample proof of this observation. Evil men like Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin have been responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people, including a great many of the righteous. And this simple observation brings me back to the last point here. Our only refuge from the inevitability of death, from the unfairness that is built into this world, and from the stupidity and destruction of foolish and evil men is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. You see, I simply cannot look at this passage without lifting my eyes to the crucified, risen Christ. Apart from Him and His finished work, life is absurd. Life is meaningless. With Him, it means so much. It has infinite value. And I think that's the thing we should leave here with this morning. Because misfortune and death come for all of us. Our only hope of victory in this life, in this life, is to trust in something that or someone who transcends all of it and has conquered death. Solomon in his observations recorded in today's passage uses death misfortune and stupidity as examples that life itself seems entirely inimical. That means hostile toward or malevolent toward any meaning of life as it is perceived by our mere observations of it. He is telling us that 
unless there is something or someone who transcends all of it, who therefore endues it with some lasting significance, then we might as well give up. But the truth is there is someone who makes it all worthwhile, who overcame death, who is alive today, and who gives our life real, eternal significance. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are so clear in your word that your son is the rightful ruler because he is the redeemer. He is the savior of the world. And we have the opportunity because of him to know him and to know you through him and to come to you as your children, as his brothers and come before you with our petitions, with our praise, with our thanksgiving, with our needs, with our hurts, and give them all to you. Father, I pray this morning that we will do that, that we will understand that life as we know it, apart from him, doesn't mean a thing. But with him, it means everything. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.